appreciate that. Two powerful, special music this morning that both remind us God has a plan. Uh, and His plan brings our salvation. Uh, before I get into the message, I just wanted to also throw in a quick plug for the, the uh, Friday evening service with the prayer stations. I had never done prayer stations in my life till a few years ago. Uh, Nick did one on a bump trip uh, that we were with. And it was just a powerful time. Uh, each time you got these different places you can go and an activity or, or something there to help you contemplate a biblical truth and then pray informed in that way. And, and so if you're like, man, I've never done this. Um, I'm not sure what to expect. I would encourage you to come. So when I was uh, a young child... I used to uh, love to watch Sesame Street. Any, anybody in here? Yeah. Okay, others, yeah. yeah. I had two, two favorite segments in there uh, I liked uh, a lot. Uh, one was The Count. Remember Count Von Count? Uh, you know, I, he, he was great. I, and I could always, you know, for a guy who loves counting... He's really slow. I could, I could beat him every time. I like that. Uh, and, and then the, uh, the other game I liked was the one where they called one of these things is not like the other, right? Uh, they, they would typically put up four items, and, and three of those things uh, were connected in some way that you had to figure out to form a group, but then the fourth item didn't match, right? So, for instance, uh, you might have something like an apple pie, a beach ball, a loaf of bread, and a bicycle uh, tire, and then you had to determine which of those items did not belong with the others, right? So in this case, the answer would be the loaf of bread, the loaf of bread right? Because everything else is round, right? you got circles. And so, yeah, it was great stuff. I love that game. What does any of this have to do with the sermon? <laughs> you know, uh, so far we've looked at four great realities uh, that are true of us because of the cross. God canceled our debt to make us fit for heaven. We, we are reconciled to God so that now we can have that good and right and, and uh, perfect relationship with Him. We've been set free from a works-based religion where we have to be good enough and try hard enough in order to earn God's favor. And four, we get to experience the power of God at work in our lives. Not just the power for salvation, as great as that would be uh, in and of itself, but the power we need for, for living and surviving in this broken world. But then you may have noticed uh, the title for today's uh, message in the bulletin, the fifth and final reality of the cross we're going to look at, and it says it's obedience. And maybe you are thinking, hey, wait a minute. This one doesn't belong. It's not like the others. The other four things were, were, were matters that God has done for me, right? He set me free. He reconciled me. He canceled my debt. He, he uh, uh, provided his power to work in our life. Isn't obedience the opposite of that? Isn't that something we do for God? So how can that be something that uh, comes about uh, or we see from the cross? Well, turn with me to the little book of Philippians chapter 2, and hopefully we'll see how that works this morning. Philippians chapter 2, right after Ephesians, right before Colossians. I didn't even think it was that funny. 
Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for everything that Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And and as we continue to look at that this Sunday, we pray that you would meet us right at our point of need, that you would speak to each person here by your spirit. And we ask that, that you would guide and direct my words so that they may be exactly what you would want this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul was trying to make a a point about church life. If you go back to verse 1 and start reading there, you'll see that. And and his point was was pretty simple. If church is going to function and thrive the way that God designed and intended it it to happen, then the people within it will need to treat each other in a specific way. And, And the way that they would have to treat each other would require obedience on the part of every individual, right? And, and the verses that we, we just read are an illustration uh, of that. In fact, the supreme illustration of obedience. In, in the life of Christ, we see that he humbled himself in obedience, which is most powerfully demonstrated at the cross. And of course, his obedience didn't begin at the cross. It began, at least from a human uh, perspective, at the incarnation. Incarnation, you know, just being a a fancy word theologians give to the uh, mystery of the infinite God becoming a finite human. Um, And that mystery is what verses 6 and 7 in this passage really are describing for us, right? Uh, They start by declaring that Jesus existed in the form of God. That's who he was. That's where he was. Uh, The Greeks had two words that were translated as form into the English. One is schema, which uh, means the outward visible form that we can see and which can change over time. The other is morpha, which means the essential nature or inward reality uh, form that never changes. And if you're thinking, wait, what, I don't quite get that? Uh, let's, let's use an illustration uh, uh, applying both of those words to a person, to a human being, right? We would say the morpha, the inward uh, uh, reality, never changes the form, their, their basic form, right? They, they are... Uh, essentially, uh, from beginning to end, uh, in nature, a human, uh, no matter what, right? They're, they're never a fish, they're never a rabbit, uh, never a lizard, they're always human. That, that's, that morpha, that inward form, never changes. Uh, but the schema, the outward visible, visible form uh, of a person, uh, that changes throughout life. And so nowhere is that more evident, right, than 
in pregnancy. So we've got a picture up here you can see, right, uh, of this. Uh, the outward visible form, that schema, changes dramatically uh, from the first several weeks of that child's life, right? Uh, you, you go from just that fertilized egg to you know, within 23 weeks there, the form of a child at 40 weeks, uh, you're going to have this full-grown baby that's ready to be born. And, and really that outside schema continues to change, right? I mean, they go all the way from that zygote, that fertilized egg and and embryo and newborn baby to this squirming baby in your arms to a a running around uh, wild uh, toddler uh, and kid and and then a growing, strong, maturing teenager and an adult. And that, uh, that outside schema changes a lot from beginning to end, doesn't it? Okay? But, but, the essential nature, the form, the, the, the fact that this is a human never, never changes. That's true from beginning to end. That's the morpha. Well, the word used in these verses to describe the form of, of Jesus is morpha, his essential nature. And basically, Paul is reminding us that Jesus Christ is God. That's, that's his form. And even though he was now here in the flesh and took on this, this outward schema, this very different look, he never stopped being God. Jesus became a man, but he was still God. And that's the mystery of the incarnation. And it's something that you know, we can really never fully grasp, well, what exactly does that mean? How does that work? How is uh, this type of thing? We, we don't know all of the details on that. We can't fully comprehend it, but the Bible teaches that as truth, and therefore we understand and accept that by faith. Jesus Christ, in the form of man, was still God. And the last half of verse 6 then says, in that position, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So even though he was, you know, this full member of the Trinity as God, Jesus, fully God, he willingly laid aside his status. He didn't try to grasp or hold on to his rights as, as a glorious member of the Godhead. Instead, as verse 7 says, he emptied himself. And again, that doesn't mean he was no longer God as we just got done seeing. Rather, it means that he voluntarily deprived himself of of his heavenly glory, uh, of his celestial rights uh, that he had, and deprived himself uh, of, of the unhindered expression of all of his divine attributes. And instead, it says, he became a bond servant. Servant sounds better. The Greek is actually slave there, bond slave. Uh, a bond servant was a slave that owned nothing, not, not even the clothes on his back. If you were a bond servant, then everything you had, including your life, belonged to the master. Uh, back in, in those days, most slaves um, could actually accumulate uh, some property, own some few basic things, and and had a few basic rights, but not not a bond slave. And so Jesus went from, from sovereign God and the glories of heaven to the absolute lowest of slaves. I mean, even within the, 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 the realm of slavery, 
there was a hierarchy. And bond slaves were the absolute lowest. It's described for us a little bit in in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, describing who he was, what he was in, in heaven as God in eternity, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So how is it that, that we can become rich through Christ's poverty? Well, that's then what's described for us in, back in Philippians uh, verse 8. There it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus didn't become a, a poor human just so he could experience poverty, right? He became a man so that he could die in our place on the cross. His poverty was that he humbled himself to the point of dying as a common criminal on a cross. Now, have you ever thought of that idea as it states it there of Jesus becoming obedient, Right? Because that's, that's what the verse says. It says he, he became obedient. Uh, Hebrews 5.8 puts it this way. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he has suffered. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus becoming, learning obedience? We, we need to understand that doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient before and now had to learn how to obey. Uh, That's obviously not what happened. What it means that now as a man, Jesus learned how to choose to be obedient. He he never had to make that choice uh, before the incarnation, right? I mean, as God, there was never any question about him always doing what was right since one of his attributes, one of his characteristics is, is perfection uh, and holiness and, and justice and goodness and all that type of thing. And so just being true to his character, obedience would be a, a moot point because it's, it's automatic. Obedience was a non-issue for a perfectly holy and righteous God. It's just something he never even had to think about, Right? But as a man, Jesus had to choose to be obedient. And and had he not chosen obedience, well, then he would have become a sinner and therefore would have forfeited his right and his ability to to be mankind's savior. But but as our verse in Philippians says, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. How far? To the point of death. Even death on a cross. Right? We, we've already seen in the last few weeks, we've been reminded um, how that crucifixion was, was the worst, most gruesome, most agonizing form of execution known to man. I mean, if there was one thing that anybody would not want to have happen to them, it would be being crucified, right? And that, that includes Jesus. Remember the anguish of, of Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, he, he pleaded with God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But because his main concern was not what, what he wanted, was not 
his own comfort or convenience. It was not his preference, but rather obedience. Then he continued that prayer and said, Yet not my will, but yours be done. So what were the limits of Jesus' obedience? None, right? He obeyed all the way to death. What was it that was able to derail or or distract Jesus from total obedience? Absolutely nothing. Not even the gruesome agonies of the cross. Of what person was Jesus able to say, well, you know, if it wasn't for that guy, I'd be able to do this. If it wasn't for her, then I would have been able to be obedient. Right? No one. And that's the point of this whole illustration, right? Jesus is the perfect and supreme example of of complete, of, of total obedience. And it's an example that we're called to follow. And that's where we now come to the point where we can say, because of the cross, I know what obedience is. Because I've seen it. I've been shown obedience because of the cross. Now, obviously, we can't duplicate what Jesus did on the cross. We can't... um, make atonement for sin, our own or anybody else's, any of that kind of stuff. We're not following his example in what he accomplished. Rather, it's his action of total obedience to God the Father that is our example. Jesus' death was the outward, visible sign of this inward, spiritual devotion that he had to God. And and we, although we can't make atonement for sins ourselves or for anybody else, we can be obedient. We can be devoted to God's will. However, for us, what can be isn't always what is. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever wondered why it is that we're not perfectly obedient the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, right? Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever fought with that? I mean, after all, the Bible says that the, the, the moment we get saved, we're a new creation, right? Most of you, many of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians 5, 17. says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, You know, with the old things gone and and, and new things here and the Holy Spirit living right inside of us and the Word of God to lead and guide us, obedience should be a snap, right? But how many of you in here can attest to the fact that it just doesn't work like that? I think all of us could, can't we? And and there's a number of reasons for that. We, We find as we read Scripture... Uh, obedience is difficult for us. Uh, for one, the Bible makes it clear that we have an enemy, right? 
The apostle Peter put it this way, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Who's that written to and about? Christians. He's writing to Christians there. Satan will attack us. His number one weapon, as we've seen before, being lies. And remember, Satan, he doesn't play fair. So he will attack you at your weakest, most vulnerable points. Beyond that, we all still struggle with the pull of our our flesh and the brokenness of this world. Those things entice us down the wrong path instead of towards obedience. And then there's the simple fact that we are weak and frail as humans, right? We, we often know what the right thing is to do, but we end up choosing the wrong anyway. The Apostle Paul uh, detailed his struggles with that very thing in Romans chapter 7. I'm, I'm doing things I, I don't even want to do, he says. That's why the Bible says of, of believers, for we all stumble in many ways. See, we're, we're all in this process of learning to be obedient. Un, unlike Jesus, who had to learn because he never had uh, experienced it, we have to learn because we do experience disobedience. But because of the cross, we can learn obedience. And I believe there's three specific things that we can learn, right? We can learn the way of obedience, the cost of obedience, and, and the reward of obedience. Uh, we can see the way of obedience as Jesus himself faced the specter of the cross in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember I, I mentioned he went there earlier and, and, and he was praying desperately because the cross is not something that he wanted to do. Right? There is nothing about the cross that is appealing. There is nothing pleasant or good, inherently good about the cross. And so Jesus earnestly prayed that it, that it could be removed from him. Basically, he was saying, man, God, I don't want to have to go through this. Is there any other way? Can this be done some other direction? But he ended that prayer with the most important statement, Right? Not my will, but yours be done. See, that's, that's the way of obedience. Obedience demands that we submit ourselves to God's will, which is much easier said than done. I mean, Jesus himself agonized over it to the point of sweating great drops of blood, the Bible says, it's hard. It's hard for us to set aside our, our selfish inclinations, our desire for comfort or ease or pleasure. It's hard to go against the flow and to be singled out as different. Each time, all day long, as we are faced with temptations, we, we have to get to that point where we can say, not my will, but thy will, right? And it's hard. And we stumble. And we fall over that point. But we understand 
that's the way. We have to set our will down and accept the will of God, which, which leads to the second thing we can learn about obedience from the cross, and that's there's always a cost involved. Now, there's a whole other sermon, uh, so we're not even going to go there, but there's always a cost involved in disobedience too, isn't there? Uh, sometimes tremendously huge costs. But there's a cost involved in obedience as well. Sometimes it may be a minimal, occasionally so small of a cost that you don't even really notice it, but there are other times when the cost of obedience is blatant and harsh. I mean, Jesus knew that, that the cost of his obedience here on, <coughs> on the cross would be you know, personal humiliation, uh, incredible pain and suffering, and, and, and finally, uh, even death. So what might it cost you to be obedient? Perhaps you'll be called to give up something that you've held on to or enjoyed. Maybe it will cost you a friendship or some other relationship in life. Perhaps it'll bring some form of humiliation or loss to you, loss of status or recognition, loss of job or promotion or loss of opportunity that maybe is afforded to other people. Are you willing to pay the cost? Because of the cross, you see, we're shown obedience at its highest cost. So will we choose to follow Jesus in that example? Well, we, we can follow him for two reasons. For one, as we learned last week, because the power of God is at work in us, right? Because of the cross, it's not just us gritting our teeth and saying, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go for it and I'm going to try to submit and all this. We've got the power of God working for us. But see, we can also follow uh, because we are, are shown and known that in obedience there is reward. Back in Philippians, right, we're told that Jesus obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross. But then look how the passage goes on from there. It says, for this reason, because he was obedient, because he did what God called him to do, for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that was his reward. He knew that was waiting, waiting after the cross, after his obedience. That's why uh, you, you could go to Hebrews 12, 2, and we're told that Jesus, uh, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He was willing to be obedient at that point because he knew the reward that was waiting. And we need to understand that no matter what the cost of obedience to us is, it will pale in comparison to the reward that God has waiting for obedience. So the question for all of us is this. Am I willing to be obedient? That's not a question you answer just once, is it? Am I willing to be obedient? Am I growing in obedience? It is a process, but we know 
the way of obedience because of the cross. So when you are faced with your temptation, can you remember the cross? Can you remember what it cost Jesus to submit and say, not my will, but yours? Can you remember the reward? Because that's God's plan for us as well. Submit. It may have to endure some pain, some cost. But what God has for us is far beyond all compare here. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the reality of the cross. Thank you for Jesus' example, which shows obedience at its highest level. And God, we know we're all a work in progress that we all stumble and fall. But God, we want to learn obedience. And as Scripture says, Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. We too need to learn obedience. So God, help us to focus on the reality of the cross and to know that we can obey because of what you have done for us and given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us for one last song?